Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guests today are Jason and Yagani Rezaian to speak about U.S. World Cup opponent Iran, the context of the protests in that country, and the inability of women to attend soccer matches in Iran. Before we get going, subscribe to my writing site at grantwall.com. We are days away from World Cup 2022, and I'll be providing daily coverage from Qatar. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm glad you did that interview uh, with the with the guests from, from Iran because that's probably the story, I think, of the World Cup group that I have probably have not dug enough into, uh, that there's huge issues going on in Iran right now. And Iran obviously have previous with both the U.S. and England in the group. So it's sort of a politically fraught group as well as a, uh, a group where there's a lot of intriguing storylines on the pitch. Yeah, I really encourage people to listen to the interview. Uh, Jason, you got to resign are two amazing journalists who spent time in Iran. Uh, both were imprisoned at one point in Iran, which is uh, they've talked about their story, written a book. Um, but they also have great perspective on what's happening in the country right now. So stick around and listen to that. Uh, we're recording this, you and me, right now on Saturday uh, midday, because I am leaving very early on Sunday morning for Qatar and wanted to get something recorded here after the Saturday morning games, because in the Premier League, there was quite a bit happening, including Manchester City losing at home to Brentford. Arsenal will be leading the league during the World Cup break. It comes back on Boxing Day. What happened to Man City? I, I thought that Manchester City had a down performance at home, which happens to them uh, having watched this team now for 10 years, probably three or four times a year where you just sort of know from the beginning of the game that they're not going to be at their sharpest. And ultimately, it relies upon an opponent to take advantage of that. And I thought Brentford did everything that you'd want to do to make Manchester City uncomfortable. I'd say namely... The most important thing they did was they actually made Man City play quicker than they would like to. I know that sounds strange because normally when teams are struggling in the attack, whenever you always hear a pundit go, they need to pass the ball quicker, they need to move it quicker, they need to make runs quicker. Quicker, 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 that's always the solution. But Man City is sort of the opposite where they like to play the game at their tempo and it isn't almost lulling a team to sleep that they are able to to figure out ways to break down their opposition, and they just did in this game. Brentford were very good in the tackle, very good closing things down. They made life uncomfortable for Man City, and then they sort of do the thing at the end of the game, which is always available, it would seem, whenever Man City throw everything at trying to win a game, and that's strike on the counterattack, 3v2. Da Silva was really calm and composed and provided an easy tap-in for Ivan Tony. Should have had a third, yep. and they sort of played the formula of how you beat Man City away to perfection. Usually it's Crystal Palace that does this yes. in Man City is what it seems like. <laughs> but very similar to that type of a feel in this game. And we talked a little bit earlier in the week about I am now of the belief, I am, I am convinced now that Arsenal actually can win the league. But we were talking about it the other day in the context of Arsenal. But there's also the context of Man City. And this Man City team isn't as consistent as it should be given the incredible amount of talent and depth on the team. Yeah, I, I actually think that the depth piece has dropped off a bit. I do think the sales of Jesus and Zinchenko are, you know, sort of showing at the moment when you look at the fact that they haven't really added another option at left back that they fully trust yet. Uh, Jack Grealish has not come online. I think you sell Jesus with the idea of Jack Grealish kicking on and be a key, a key part of the team. Riyad Mahrez hasn't really contributed very much this season. And all of a sudden, you're relying upon Julian Alvarez, who I think maybe in a previous Man City team would be out on loan right now. I don't even know if he'd be in this first team or he would sort of be figuring it out in the way that he is now, but he's being relied upon a bit more, particularly when they rotate the team. So I think the depth is a bit off, and I do think for as well as Erling Haaland has played, he has changed Manchester City. And I do think that it has affected the other players in the team because they got so used to playing without a striker and were so fluid and knew exactly what their roles were that now in changing their roles, it has led to an adjustment period. And it has not always been perfect. It also hasn't been perfect in the Champions League either. Uh, they just haven't been made to pay for it because I don't think the group was strong enough to really cause them a problem. So I do think Manchester City are still adjusting to life with Erling Holland. And they've got to figure it out a bit more after the break. But that might only get more difficult because 
their entire team is going to the World Cup. And so I, I, I imagine that it has the potential to be really tough for them coming out of the break. I think Pep Guardiola joked that before Boxing Day, there's meant to be a Carabao Cup fixture that is the midweek after the World Cup final. And I think Pep Guardiola said that he and Jurgen Klopp might have to play because they will be so short on players. <laughs> By the way, Pep's outfit today was truly weird. He's worn it like three or four games now. It's, it's <laughs> like his default. He always has a default outfit. Last year, it was a man, there was a Man City badge on a black sweater that was sort of like slight. It looked like it had gotten like overheated in the dryer. And and then you have this one as well. I have, I have no idea what's going on with his outfits. Um, you know what's funny? Also, what hit me today is I, I, you know, talking about Boxing Day being the day that the Premier League comes back. And it hit me that usually at the end of the World Cup, I'm all sad because the World Cup's over and also because there's not going to be any really good soccer for a little while. And that's not going to be the case this year. Yeah. You know, we're going to go jump straight into I, the I want a longer break. <laughs> I, I want less football. I want to feel that sadness. That sadness is part of the World Cup experience. I need the sadness. Not going to happen this year, my friend. I think it's going to be awesome on Boxing Day to get up and watch a ton of Premier League soccer. Uh, let's talk about Spurs 4, Leeds 3. And I have my evergreen tweet that I retweet every week now that says every Leeds game is a journey. Mine is mine is Leeds United have never played a normal game. <laughs> <laughs> Leeds led three times in this game, scored three goals, and lost. Zero points for their efforts. And I don't know what to say because, like, you look at the performance that Leeds had at the attacking end, and it was impressive. But their defending can be so, so bad. And, like, some of these goals are just a little comical. Yeah, I think... And we talked about this last week. I said that I thought that Leeds needed to improve inside the penalty area when when they're defending their own box, and those issues persist. You think about some of the spaces that players popped into. I think Tyler Adams. I know that uh, Rodrigo Betancourt's hit takes a deflection on the way through, and eventually leads to the three three. But Adams just sort of got lost in his own box and sort of didn't know where his nearest mark was. I thought even before the red card, he had had a pretty bad game for Leeds. And I think that he's a player that sometimes when Leeds don't defend very well, he's sort of the one that's in the middle of it and has to cover the most ground. And I feel for him, but it hasn't always been perfect for him from a defensive point of view. And I just think overall, the fourth goal comes from Dan Kulisevsky just flatly beating uh, a, a defender with a great piece of skill. And Spurs have great attacking talent. They got Richarlison and Kulisevsky into their starting lineup today to pair with Kane. They should be scoring tons of goals at home. And you admire the sort of endeavor from Leeds to go forward and attack Spurs. They are vulnerable right now. And you saw their vulnerabilities uh, in, in full display today. But man, if they just had 10% more defensive now in these sorts of games, they might have six or seven more points on the board than they do right now. Well, when Rodrigo put Leeds ahead 3-2, Jesse Marsh made one change and went a bit more defensive. He should have subbed more. I, even in the moment, you're like, more subs now and, and find a way to ice this game and calm it down. And it's almost like they're not totally capable of calming it down. And, and maybe you do want to just be yourself, you know, the rest of the way, you know, do what got you here. I, 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 don't, I mean... And obviously, Spurs deserves credit for you know the comeback and and you know getting what they needed to get three points out of this game. But the you know for Leeds, three points were there for the taking, and that's got to be a frustrating way after two straight wins in the league. They could have had three straight to go into the break. Yeah, and and could have potentially ended the day with a win in twelfth. Uh, Leicester, who won again, who are playing really well right now, uh, climb above them in the table. Bournemouth as well, after the drop points that they've had, comfortably dispatching Everton today as well. So Leeds are currently uh, at the end of Saturday. This is before the, the Sunday games have been played on 15 points. Villa could potentially jump them. And, and I think, you know, like you said, if they win that game, they would have been at least a game clear of the relegation zone. They win three in a row. They beat Spurs, 
in the run-in. They beat Liverpool in the run-in to the World Cup break, and things feel good. But in some ways, this performance, despite the fact that it is against a good team away from home, and, and coming into the season, you don't think we're going to go get three points away at Spurs. It's a reminder of all of the faults of Jesse Marsh's leads. And I think that that's probably what you don't want to be thinking about heading into a, a four-week break. Or maybe it is sort of a reminder of, hey, during this break, we got to figure some things out. They only lose three players to the World Cup. So uh, I, I heard in an interview, uh, or I'm sorry, in his press conference, Jesse Marsh say, we'll kind of get back to work in about two weeks' time. And I imagine uh, defensive uh, training will be a huge part of what Leeds try and work on during the break that they have. In, in set piece, defending needs to be better. And I'm usually accustomed to seeing Jesse Marsh teams do better on set piece defending. I will say this, in the big picture, Jesse Marsh is in a more stable situation for now than he was a couple of weeks ago when it looked like he might get the sack. And we do know that Leeds can compete just fine and beat the best teams in the league on their day. Yeah. And, and so this was an example. I mean, Spurs is one of the best teams in the league. They're a champions league team at home and really Leeds should have gotten one or even three points out of this. So if you want to be optimistic, I think you could look at it that way. And I you know, they have the endeavor, you know, they're going to try. Yeah. And I'm not as down on Tyler Adams performance as maybe you were here. I, mm -hmm. I think he had some good moments in this game and in general is in the, over the last few weeks in the form of his career. Now there's a couple of missed, defensive assignments like even when Kane got the first goal for Leeds uh that was the mark of Tyler Adams um but overall he does so much for that team and brings so much energy and breaks up stuff including today I thought and I was also encouraged to see Brendan Aronson get an assist mm -hmm. on the first goal and and we talked about this that Brendan Aronson needs to be creating more assists more goals and if he can do that for the U.S. all the better Okay, let me ask you a question because it was hotly debated. I know we're near a World Cup when uh, positions in the in the World Cup squad are being argued about uh, very vehemently in the group chats that I'm in. Okay, so let's say Musa and Adams are sort of the base of your midfield, and let's call it just for the sake of it that McKenney is sort of the more advanced midfielder. So the U.S. will probably pick a striker, we presume, because they've taken three, and Greg Berhalter has not played with a false nine as far as I can tell. So let's say the attacking midfield position and the two wing positions for the U.S. Right now, you have five candidates to start. You have Gio Reyna, Tim Weah, Brendan Aronson, Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney. It means two of them are not going to start. And I think whichever of those two players, it'll sort of be a huge topic of conversation. But off the Leeds game, a lot of my friends are saying, oh, Aronson has to start. And I asked, well, who do you bench? And everyone had a different answer. So what's your answer? for those three positions, left wing, right wing, and let's call it number 10 for the sake of the argument. Yeah, I mean, like, I think McKenney's going to be, it's a three-man central midfield. I think right. it's going to be McKenney, Musa, Adams. Mm -hmm. uh, it's possible we could see Aronson in there. Um, I just don't see it for the first game. Um, in terms of the wings, I get the feeling from Greg Berhalter that if Gio Reyna is healthy, he wants to start him really uh, on the wing. That's just my sense. Burhalter loves Gio Reyna and he's a great, you know, he's a promising player. He hasn't actually done that much from the wing position for the U.S. He also just hasn't played that much for the U.S. But we saw Gio Reyna start both those last two games for the U.S. Um, before he tweaked himself again. And, and he's healthy, by the way, which is great. I mean, like there are more healthy players for the U.S., including at the wing position, than has been the case for quite a while. That's why Paul Ariola did not make the roster, Berhalter said. But I, I do feel like Pulisic and Reyna would be the two most likely from my perspective on the wings. Now, Tim Weah has been very productive for the U.S. and brings something which is more of a traditional crosser wide guy when he plays that way and i think that's helpful for the team because reyna and pulisic really do like to cut in and you want to have width um and i think you know part of this is going to be how greg berhalter looks at the opponent and and how to try and beat a particular opponent i don't think you're going to see the same two wingers start all three group games yeah, for the U.S. and and obviously you knock on wood, you hope everyone's healthy, but still. Um, and so if Pulisic and Reyna start, 
does that mean you just you don't start Aronson and Weya? Because those guys are good. Uh, you know, Tim Weya has not played a ton at club level in recent months. Brendan Aronson has. Brendan Aronson is in. He, you know, he can go ninety minutes every game for Leeds United. Um, so. I think it's a good choice to have for Greg Berhalter, but it's also a tough choice. Agreed. And I think Wea has he started to play he's played in the last five league matches for for Lille. I think by the end of the weekend it'll probably be six. So at least he is starting to play more. And I, I do think of the four, he's the one player that I think probably I mean, Pulisic has to be on the field just by virtue of sort of status, but I think Wea just adds a skill set that is more needed than the other two. Um I, I I do think that the midfield position with McKenney is slightly more in doubt. I understand how important he was in qualifying and how sort of first choice he's been, but given how well Aronson is playing in midfield, given the fact that McKenney, again, we're taping this before Juve played Lazio, he might have, you know, gone a couple weeks without playing while Aronson is in form. I I don't know. I, I do think there's a chance that the midfield is Adams, Musa, and Aronson. Oh, yeah, um, especially if McKenney's not at 100%. Right, and it becomes the Reddit AMA midfield instead of the MMA <laughs> midfield. Uh, but uh, I, I do think that it's a really interesting problem because two of those guys are going to be named to the bench, and I think all of them will have genuine claims to, wait a second, why am I on the bench? Brendan Aronson in particular because he's playing so well, but I've always just kind of felt when you look at the U.S. team during qualifying, it always felt like, Pulisic was on one wing, Waya was on one wing, and the midfield was McKenny Musa Adams. That was a successful formula, and that leaves uh, both Reyna, who it wasn't much of a problem during qualifying because he just wasn't fit during qualifying, and Aronson sort of out in the cold to provide impacts from the bench. And then I think you also have to ask the question, which of those players is most likely to make an impact from the bench? And I sort of wonder uh, which skill set sort of coming on with 20 minutes to play might be most useful. All great questions. A couple points I would make. I, I kind of find it hilarious how much, how many of us, including me, looked at the fact that Brendan Aronson was listed as a midfielder on paper on the roster, and we're like, ooh, you know, he's always usually listed as forward winger, and like, but why would anyone give away like? tactical secrets and changes in the roster that's yeah. released. I mean, like the whole thing is a little ridiculous. And I think they're kind of having some fun with it. Um, and then I do wonder, and this is in the back of my mind, and we, we study Greg Burhalter and we, we think we know him and, and what he prefers and what he wants to do. But there were more surprises than we were expecting from mm -hmm. Greg Burhalter in his 26-man roster. And it just makes me wonder a tiny bit if he might consider a false nine. If he might, especially given this stuff that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And somebody asked me this week, who would be that false nine most likely in my mind? And I think I think Tim Weah might be I think be at that, that point, guy. he wouldn't even be a false nine. I think he'd just be he'd a be nine, a nine. Because, because he has previous with, with the, in, playing that position. So it wouldn't be sort of the traditional coming back to receive the ball and you vacate the space and the center backs don't know which attacker to run with, which is sort of the, the hallmarks of the false nine. Like Pulisic plays false nine. Reyna plays false nine. But I think Wea would just sort of be trying to make runs in behind and that's sort of like his number one job. And I think it's, um, it's very unlikely, but it's a tiny bit more likely than I would have thought before. Yeah, because you, you start to entertain Berhalter doing things that you're not accustomed to when he picks Tim Ream, when he had never picked Tim Ream, and he picks Haji Wright seemingly from out of nowhere after he had kind of ruled him out. And I do wonder if if maybe over the course of the you know five months in between uh, the sort of end of the summer break and, and the U.S. sort of constant flurry of games kind of end until now, he sort of had to rethink about what the World Cup requires and how that's different to what qualifying requires. And so maybe there's sort of the the desire to get the, quote, best players on the field. But I, I do think that national teams have run into issues in the past when they try to do that. Let's just get all the best players. Like, if you think that Josh Sargent has a role to play in the team because he can provide, uh, you know, defensive pressing and, you know, striker runs and and you value a certain skill sets, if you value Jesus Ferreira's skill set as part of your system, like, I do, it's a very fine balance. I get that, in theory, Brendan Aronson is a better player than Jesus Ferreira, but he might not be the right player. And because you have five subs, you have the ability to change the game late. If you go into the Wales game thinking, let's try and keep this nil-nil after 45 minutes, then it's the subs who will change the game. If you're, if you're thinking about trying to keep it close with England, then it's the subs who will change the game. And so it's not necessarily an insult or you're saying this person is worse because they're not starting. 
One other thing I would add is I like the mentality inside the team. And I feel like if one of those wingers or a couple of them don't start, they're not going to sulk. Those Mm -hmm. guys don't do that. And I think that's a, a real positive about this U.S. team. I, I cannot imagine a situation like 98 with this team. Even if they, even if they lose their first game, I, wouldn't, I, I, I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll see what they do in the first game. I just, it's hard for me to imagine a meltdown in like players like going public if they lose the first game before the second game. Um, it just seems like they have a good chemistry inside this team. And I, I can't see the other players letting it happen. I can't see the coaching staff letting it happen. Um, almost all there. Um, wanted to ask you about a couple other things here. Josh Sargent scored on Saturday for Norwich. He did come off late in the game after a knock, but it did not appear to be serious. The coach said afterwards. So, um, if Josh Sargent's in form, this only adds to what I think is a, a really interesting question. If Burhalter does go, at center forward with one of his three center forwards, Josh Sargent, Haji Wright, Jesus Ferreira. Who is it? Uh, I, good, good question. And by the way, just to get the full quote from uh, Dean Smith, the Norwich manager, he said that Sargent, quote, rocked his ankle a bit, uh, but still hopeful there should be no issues with him being part of the U.S. at the World Cup. So um, yeah, I, that that might sort of be a slight thing in the favor of Jesus Ferrer. We know that he's been in training camp with the U.S. and they got there very early. I think they're the first team there and 10 of their MLS players were, or eight or nine of them, however many there are, were were sort of already there and, and went through a training session and trying to get the jet lag out of their legs. But yeah, I mean, that that number nine question, we're going to ask it. I would not, I would honestly not be surprised if all three of them started in the in, in the group stage, seriously, that would like be we hilarious. Just, we just sort of go from one to the other to the other until someone scores a goal. I honestly would not be surprised if all three of them started. <laughs> By the way, this is at least a slightly more interesting conversation than the one that lasted throughout World Cup 2014. Of is Josie Altidore going to play? <laughs> because <laughs> I got so sick of like looking at Josie Altidore trotting around the training field and Jurgen bringing him out there, acting like he was healthy and ready to play when. Like behind the scenes, he he wasn't even close. It was just not close. Um, I want to talk about one other thing quickly here. Uh, FIFA Uncovered is out on Netflix. And I don't know if you've seen any of the episodes yet. I've seen the first two. They're good. They're good. I mean, and I know this story. A lot of you know this story, but they've got interviews with Seth Blatter, Jerome Valk, uh, investigators from the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, my friend Ken Bensinger, who wrote the terrific book Red Card. Sunil Gulati's in it. There's a big U.S. aspect to it, obviously, and it really is a, a true crime story about FIFA and, and really interesting. Even in the first episode, uh, Seth Blatter's sort of conciliary over the years just flat out says that cash envelopes were given to voters in 98 when Blatter first became the president. <laughs> and <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> the crimes okay. are so hilarious from this organization. It just, it's so absurd. I, I mean, I heard as well, uh, you know, there's been a few podcasts about the awarding of Qatar. I, for, I forget which one of them I heard it and I apologize, but one of them was like, yeah, you know, we showed up to, uh, you know, we showed up to this place and I think Morocco, uh, there was a bunch of FIFA Exco committee there, Exco committee members there, they each got an envelope filled with $1.5 million in cash, and that was their votes done. And it's like, how how did this happen? What? And I saw in the one that uh, Roger Bennett and Tommy Vitor did, uh, the, uh, there was a Justice Department official who was quoted as saying, I worked in New Jersey politics, and this is the most corrupt thing I've ever seen. It's just so wild and hilarious to me that this organization not only sort of cared, not only acted like this, but it would appear as though not not really a ton has changed. And I, the, the the brazenness of it all, the characters of it all are just sort of bizarre to me. I, I, I do have to watch this thing on Netflix, but um, it, I do sort of almost become numb to it in a way. I know that that's, that might sound ridiculous, but they're just such comedy thieves that I, right. I can't even sort of work up the antipathy that I probably should for them. No, and also too, I mean, the mafia comparison is very accurate. And like a lot of storied mafia bosses over the years a lot of these guys are dirty as hell but they're charming too i mean they're interesting mm-hmm. characters like chuck blazer was dirty as hell but he was charming and in that 
I think is part of led to his success, if you want to put success in quotes over the years, of making so much money under the table and over the table out of CONCACAF and FIFA and and, and all of it. But um, you know, there's a lot on Chuck Blazer in this uh, documentary as well, including his former partner, who I got to know covering all of this stuff back in the day. And um, yeah, it, it, it's worthwhile. I'm looking forward to seeing the remaining episodes. Uh, also, our film, uh, Good Rivals, comes out November 24th, Metal Arc, yeah. one of the production studios, and I'm really excited about it. I think everyone's going to enjoy it. It's really good. I'm really happy with how it turned out. Yeah, and uh, I, I believe we're having a screening in the office this week. I'm, I'm very excited uh, to, to see the finished product for the first time. And yeah, Prime Video, Thanksgiving, during the World Cup, a USA-Mexico documentary we, we think everyone in the audience will enjoy. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Jason and Yagane Rezaian. The U.S. meets Iran in the World Cup on November 29th, and my guests now are two of the foremost journalists on Iran in the United States and soccer fans as well. Jason Rezaian is a columnist for The Washington Post, creator of the podcast series 544 Days, and the author of Prisoner, about his wrongful imprisonment by Iranian authorities from 2014 to 2016 as a political hostage. Also with us is his wife, Yagane Rezaian, who was also imprisoned with Jason for nearly three months and has also done extensive journalism on Iran for Bloomberg and other outlets. She has written on women soccer fans in Iran who have not been allowed to attend games and is now a senior researcher for the Committee to Protect Journalists. It's an honor to have both of you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us, Grant. Yes, thank you so much for having us and looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's just so great to have you both here and and I appreciate it. We are a soccer podcast, but we're also a culture podcast and there's a much wider, much more important context around the U.S. versus Iran game in the World Cup. Would it be possible just to start by explaining to listeners what's happening in Iran right now with protests and what has led to them? Jason, you go do that and I talk more soccer. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, So at the moment, we are um, all almost uh, two full months into uh, ongoing protests in Iran uh, that started in late September following uh, the death in custody of a young Iranian woman, Masa Amini, who was arrested by what they call the morality police in Iran. Uh, but really, they are dress code police uh, that that uh, arbitrarily uh, enforce rules about what women can wear in the streets. Uh, she was taken into custody and uh, some way uh, along the, the ride to the detention center where she was uh, going to be processed, uh, it appears as though she was savagely beaten by uh, the forces that picked her up. And a few days later, uh, after being in a coma, she, um, she died in a hospital. Uh, the news of that broke, and Iranians have been out in the streets ever since. And I think it's important to say that you know these protests are um, led primarily and initially uh, by women, but other um, other marginalized groups in Iranian society, ethnic minorities like the Kurds and the Baluchis, Azeris, religious minorities, Sunnis. Um, the LGBTQ community and others have come out and said, hey, look, we want equality under this system that it's, that has denied us that for 43 years. And so I think that's the context of what's going on. And Yagane, you were born in Iran. You both have lived in Iran. How are you able to cover what's happening in Iran right now from over here in the U.S.? Well, as you said, I was born and raised in Iran, so that helps a little bit with the coverage because you understand the mentality of both people, which I'm one of them, and also um, a little bit of the system because I grew up in that system and I'm very well familiar with their brutality. I'm very well familiar with how they deprive people of their 
very basic rights, including women um, who have been um, <clears throat> deprived of their own rights to choose their own outfit, like the very basic right of clothing. And and um, that helps, obviously, um, but it's not ideal to be far from your, your homeland and, and cover it. I'm lucky that these days my work at the Community Protect Journalists um, let me focus on one particular beat and only cover that while obviously as an Iranian I read and monitor the news of my homeland religiously every morning all news of, of my my um, former country um, but because my work is very focused on one particular beat uh, that gives me a s more more time and and accuracy in terms of of doing what i do rather than like on major hard news and just as a quick follow-up how much do iranians use social media like instagram or or, or twitter or oh, anything that's else a, that's a very great question let me tell you that because iranians have been historically disconnected by this regime by force from the international community for years there was a war so iranians couldn't really travel then there was sanctions so it was financially difficult for iranians to travel to outside the world and because of the hostility that this regime has had with other western countries there were not usually many um foreign tourists who would come and visit the beautiful historic sites of Iran, Iranians are very um, thirsty for being connected and heard and being communicated to with the rest of the world. So at this point, in recent years, when internet was available to them as much as it was, we know it was not 100% like, like the internet we have. Um, Iranians were huge users of, of social media. Instagram was up to these protests, the only openly social media platform available to them. And we know that there were many millions of Iranians on maybe up to 70% of Iranians were uh, on Instagram doing businesses, being connected with each other, being connected with the outside world, like if they had friends and relatives. Um, they also have a very strong presence on Twitter, but they need to use VPN. Mm -hmm. um, but, but generally, if you imagine Iran has a very young generation, and this very young generation is, is very well-educated, very well-connected with the outside world, and, and dying to be even more connected. So social media plays a major role in their daily life. Jason, how might we see the protests in Iran influence things at the World Cup with the Iranian team? I think we're going to... Um, see it influence the Iranian team's experience first and foremost. I think there'll be more um, international media scrutiny on what they do um, during during the the games. Um, I also think that you know there's been this conversation about whether or not FIFA should disqualify Iran from participating in the World Cup because of their support of uh, Russia in the in the um, the delivery of drones uh, that Russia is using in their war against Ukraine. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of political intrigue uh, involved, but also there are former uh, players, current players who are supportive of these protests. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 the truth of the matter is that, that uh, the Iranian national team, Team Mameli, as it's uh, known in Persian, uh, and and within Iran is sort of one of the most important symbols of modern Iran. Um, and for, for that reason, uh, it's somewhat controversial. I mean, I think fandom of uh, the national team uh, knew no boundaries until quite recently. And as you talked about earlier, I mean, the, the fact that women are barred from entering stadiums, uh, you know, people probably had to 
to pledge allegiance and, and keep their mouth shut for periods of time while playing on the team in, in, in ways that they might not have had they not been associated with the national team. All of those those topics are um, are a bit controversial and, and um, but ultimately I mean I think the, the vast majority of the Iranians feel connected, more connected with, with this team than they do with any other member of the Iranian sports community. It's an interesting one because I, I just talked to a, a friend of mine who's Iranian who, who lives in Doha these days and somebody I met around the 1998 World Cup mm. game uh, between the U.S. and Iran that was won by Iran. Is is there any comparison to the 98, like what was happening in 98 around that Iran team? And... My friend actually had told me that there are some in the protests who think some of the players, maybe even the new coach, who's the old coach, Carlos Caros, are are tied to the regime. Is there anything to that? I'll 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 say one thing, and then I'd really like to hear what Yegi has to, has to say. But um, I think you know by definition, anybody who's playing for an Iranian national team or the national team of any uh, country is tied to the regime and that they're paid by uh, a federation funded by uh, the government, the, the country's government. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so in that sense, yeah, they're, they're, they're part of, uh, the system are connected in that way. Does that mean that they are, um, supportive of it? Not necessarily. Um, and I think around, you know, the question of, of, uh, the, the factors compared to, uh, 1998, that was a big deal. I mean, you remember this was, you know, a huge moment in the uh, at that point two decades long enmity between the U.S. and Iran, um, and you know it was at the dawn of the the reform movement inside Iran, uh, and there was hope that relations between the two countries could change. I think that there's hope that relations between the two countries could change again. But that hope is no longer invested in uh, diplomatic outreach, uh, whether it be through you know traditional diplomatic channels or um, or or public diplomacy or uh, through sports, but rather through connectivity between the people of Iran and the people of the U.S. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's a in my mind even more consequential moment than that 1998 match. What's your sense, Yagane, about how the protests might influence things at the World Cup? Well, I think they will definitely uh, have some some impact at the World Cup, as we have seen in the past few weeks that um, its impact on several other national games that Iran players at different sports played, like the rock climbing female Iranian who decided to ditch her hijab. And then she, I'm sure, faced consequences as she walked back to the country. Um, we saw that our um, men, national men beach volleyball players made some solidarity signs at their game a couple of days ago with Iranian women. And they are, it, it's been reported that they are facing consequences. Their, their team arrived, their car arrived at the airport and the security forces barred the players from giving any interviews to journalists. So I'm sure there will be both positive and negative impacts at at these three initial games that that Iran is is going to play at at the World Cup, I hope they are more positive. Um, I'm sure um, we we saw um, another team in the past couple of days played, and the players refrained themselves from singing the national anthem because they do not feel that um, they are representing this regime anymore. They feel that they are the players believe that they are more representative of the people of Iran, so they did not sing the national anthem so we will see things like this even more major um possibly or maybe smaller but my heart goes out to to the to the players um 
once they are back in the country and the consequences that they have to face and they know that so i what i want to say is that if we see any impact uh positive in solidarity with the iranian people those de- decisions are made very cleverly and very decidedly by by the players if we see anything like that and Yagane, you have written some really good stories about the situation of Iranian women not being allowed to attend soccer matches over the years right. in stadiums. Where is that situation right now? Unfortunately, the situation remained the same despite all the international pressure and all the um, national pressure by Iranian women women and several uh, celebrities working with Iranian women to to push their their um, request on onto the Federation but the situation still remains there have been a couple of um, pre World Cup games that FIFA asked Iran to to let women in and by that they just handpicked the group of women um, who are part of the system and let those women like let's say the female parliamentarian and their relatives they let those women in the stadium which is terrible I was talking to a friend of mine who said the last game that um, Iran's Federation announced that they can go ahead women um spectators can go ahead and buy the ticket online she was saying that that was a lie and the website never opened up and it was impossible for them to purchase the ticket online once they put their gender uh, in the system so we have seen these these um, tactics by by the by the iran regime and unfortunately it's very sad and the truth is that um Iranian women are still banned from freely walking to the stadium without any hurdle, without any obstacle, and sit there as a normal fan of the Team Amelie and watch the game. I want to ask Jason first and then Yagane just about how you got into soccer. And I was talking with Jason a little bit before we started recording, and your wrongful imprisonment you're essentially very a similar case to Brittany Griner's current situation in Russia you also watched a lot of soccer while you were imprisoned yeah you know I I, I grew up uh, in Northern California um, you know running around on a field and trying to kick a ball and uh, not being very good at it and although I I was on the soccer team you know in the maybe sixth and seventh grade uh i moved on and um kind of lost any interest although many of my friends continued to play into high school and on club teams and college uh and then in early adulthood you know we would travel to europe and stuff and everybody would say hey, let's go see a, a soccer match I'm like what why, why am i gonna spend 50 bucks to go to the stadium to watch a game that like you know doesn't make any sense and, and then I landed in prison in, in Iran. And after uh, several months of being in, in complete isolation, I was put into a larger cell that had a TV. And, uh, you know, Iran state television, um, you know, they don't pay any licensing fees to international broadcasters. And they just, you know, show what they want to show so that they, they would have um, live feeds of um of European soccer matches. And one of my cellmates was a huge um, Real Madrid fan. Uh, loved Ronaldo, which I thought was ridiculous because the guy just seemed like such a... I don't even know what kind of words we can use on this show, Grant, but he <laughs> just seemed like one of the... He looked like... He just seemed like one of those dudes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, uh, did, you know, what's a guy like that, you know, running around in shorts... Uh, afraid to get dirty for you know and uh you know as as uh i would say friendly rivalry uh in in the cell uh i naturally uh gravitated towards barcelona and um and just loved the um the kind of bad boy nature of 
uh, Neymar and, you know, sort of like sour attitude of Suarez. And, um, and so I just, I got into it and it made it so that I could learn uh, some of the rules of soccer. Um, you know, Yegi and I started watching Ted Lasso not so long ago. I was happy to, to understand that uh, I'm not the only American uh, that doesn't understand what offsides <laughs> constitutes. You know, you know it when you see it, right? He said something like that, I think. But um, you know, it it was it was a really kind of fun aspect of uh, uh, fun is not the right word, but a little bit of joy in a, an otherwise an otherwise dark time. Yagane, what's your connection to soccer over the years? Oh, as the third girl or third daughter of a father who was desperate to have son. <laughs> I grew up watching lots of soccer with my sister and dad, who was always trying to teach us, and it was a lot of fun. I grew up playing soccer in my neighborhood as the only girl who was not wearing a job and acted a little bit tomboy with my uh, boyfriends in the neighborhood, and it was a lot of fun, and my dad was always uh, there and trying to teach me more and help me get physically stronger so I could um, continue playing with the boys but obviously there was an age when I got 16, 17 that I couldn't hide my femaleness anymore if that's the word I can use and um, yeah the Islamic rules and the dress code banned me from playing anymore because we had angry uh, religious female neighbors who were not happy with me playing um, in our street with boys with no hijab. So I had to stop um, and instead watch more soccer. And I was always desperate to go to the stadium and watch a soccer team of my national team in Manly or or a national team and um, it got to a point that when Iran and Australia were playing for that um, pre-qualifying game um, I passed out can you believe that as a as a 16 year old I passed out when Iran won um, and then my parents were so worried for me because I invested too much on that game and I had so much stress that the moment Khodadad Azizi scored that goal, I was um, unconscious for a few minutes um, uh, or maybe a few seconds. Uh, but um, it's really sad, Grant, to say that until this day, I have not been able to walk um, to a stadium and, and watch a soccer game yet. I was very lucky that when we early on came back to the United States, I went to the Golden State Warriors um, Oracle Stadium and watched a male basketball game. And that was a lot of fun. And I remember walking up to the top of the Oracle Stadium in San Francisco Bay Area and I said oh my god Jason this is breathtaking this is so beautiful um, but I'm looking forward to finally being able to watch a soccer game if it is Real Madrid Barcelona which I am um, a rival of, of my husband and I am <laughs> a fan of Real Madrid I I can't wait uh, I would love that yeah and now we have a little boy uh, and I'm hoping that we can teach him some moves and and, and he becomes a, at least a soccer player for fun. He actually—that's my story. He, he, awesome. he likes to kick. He likes to kick the ball around, but every once in a while, he picks it up and you know slams dunks it into a, a mini basketball hoop. So I, I'm hoping that he's a multi-sports uh, guy. And we we were we went to Spain uh, this summer, and we bought uh, matching Barca. Uh, outfits for for he and, and his uh, one-year-old cousin so um you know the rivalry I look, continues I, I look forward to him being a rebel and deciding to be an atletico madrid fan exactly exactly <laughs> so when the world cup starts very soon here uh iran's first game is against england i think it's the second game of the tournament the game against united states is on november 29th what will you two be doing to to watch that game to to 
prepare for that game? What will the what will it look like at your household? Well, four years ago, Eggy and I threw a watch party um, at a sports bar at a, a Boston um, themed sports bar here in DC um, because you know we wanted a place for people to um, to get together and 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 watch the match. We didn't know or hear of any other. Um, venues where Iranian Americans would be gathering. And, um, you know, it was a packed house. A couple hundred people came um, and we had Persian food. And it was a really special thing. We're getting really close to the to the day of the match, uh, I guess less than three weeks away. Uh, but that being said, uh, I know we're going to do something. I'm not sure what it is yet, but I'm sure it's going to be pretty cool. In- I would like yeah. us Grant to to do another watch party, but uh, in respect, with respect to all the Iranians who have been killed, all the protesters back in Iran, and all the blood that have been shed. I don't think we're gonna do a party, but rest assured, we're gonna at least watch at home and have a big. Um, table of all kinds of snacks and and put our baby to sleep and the two of us be glued to tv and uh i think at the end of the day i'm gonna cheer iran and jason will cheer the u.s well this is what i said to uh yegi uh, grant once before we got married and you know it almost uh, ended the relationship for good uh an iranian and an american uh uh uh, wrestling champions were uh, facing off in the Olympics, and I told her, you know, may the best country win. And um, you know, that day America won, and um, I realized that, uh, you know, I-, I love America, I love Iran. Um, you know, I- I'll just be happy if uh, when when the two teams face off in a couple of weeks, that it's a, a clean match, uh, a friendly match, and one where the world gets to see that um, sportsmen can uh, compete in a way that uh, preserves their humanity. One last question for Yagane. Um, do, you, do you have hope that someday you might be able to go to a different Iran, maybe even run by a different regime where it's very easy for, for women to attend soccer games. I stay hopeful, Grant. I hope so. Um, that's the hope that keeps me alive because I would like to go back to my country, see my old neighborhood. And see the Iranian women in their full capacity of looking beautiful and smell good and and be intelligent and smart um, and don't have to um, be forced by anyone to do anything. Um, So yeah, I carry that hope in my heart. I hope it happens in my lifetime. Yeah. Jason and Yagane Rezaian, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us, Graham. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Jason and Yagane Rezaian, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or a paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.